0: Today is September the 9th, 2019. This is episode 2505 of the Survival Podcast. And it's going to be an awesome one. It's Monday. That means it's a listener feedback show, which means you guys drive the majority of today's show with your questions. Send those to me in an email, jack at com. jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Whenever you send an email to me for anything related to the show, Make sure you put TSPC in the subject line and you will eventually, one way or another, whether you end up with a spam box or not, get called out and be. uh, uh, I will respond to you or read your mail or what have you. Here's what we have for you today. Number one, we're going to lead off with a quote of the day. I think I'm going to do a quote of the day at least a few times a week. I'm really enjoying doing those. Then I'm going to have a quick update on my keto diet and a video I put out today called Why You Should Treat Obesity Like Cancer. Uh, it's gonna be a real short segment because the video is about 12 minutes long and covers most of it. I just wanna make you aware of it. And I wanna tell you guys like, you know, what has happened to me in, in just a few short days as far as my overall weight and percentage of body loss and all if you've not been following the videos. Cause most of you guys do not follow me on YouTube. Uh, most of the audience here is podcast listeners. You listen to podcasts on iTunes and what have you. Uh, next I got a question on coffee grounds for fertilizer and compost. Thoughts on the best fish for small backyard ponds, uh, ponds, you know, from a few hundred to a few thousand gallons. How work is really a, how much work is it really if you shoot a grown white-tailed deer and then you have to drag it out, whatever that means for you. We'll talk about that and why it may be not as difficult as some people think, but it could be even more difficult depending on where you are and how big the deer are and what the terrain is like, um... A question on helping family members who will not help themselves. I can only give you a way to look at this, not really a way to do anything. If I knew how to help family members that won't help themselves, I have quite a few family members I would help. Um, we'll explain why that's the case when we get there. question on automating ventilation and watering in a greenhouse. The risk of swimming a upon near livestock. In this case, the livestock includes horses. Uh, My predictions for Ask Clown Circus 2020 and the presidential election. Okay, I'll I'll step into that ring just for a bit, but I'll do it as a prognosticator, not someone that's rooting for either side of the clowns. And then I have a question about developing a lawn on bulldozed land. We'll get to all of that in more in just a moment. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one, Ridge Wallet. Ridge Wallet is a big part in the last few years how I've developed more of a minimalist philosophy. You know, I'm big on EDC, like all of you guys. I like to have certain things that are on me all the time, but that can end up with you know, kind of like, you know, bat was a Batman's utility belt if you're not careful with too much, right? And one way I've minimized is not having a big lump on my butt in a typical billfold wallet. Going with the ridge wallet, it does everything that I need. Uh, I carry mine. I use the clip version, not the band version. I carry it inside my front pocket, like you would carry a liner lock knife. It's made my life so much better. It can make your life better, too, and it can protect you from identity theft. And they have some other really cool products available where? Of course, RidgeWallet.com. MSB members, you guys get a discount. Next up today, J.M. Bullion. Silver and gold. I have made a single, solitary recommendation for 11 years. And that is that you, over time, accumulate somewhere between 5 to 10% of your net wealth and what we call a wealth assurance program. It's like insurance, but it's assurance because it's even more important. And I'm not the guy on TV that tells you to go all in. I'm not the guy that says, It's a debt so high, it's completely unacceptable. I'm all crotchety and old, and I buy my gold from blah, blah, blah. I'm not. I'm not that guy, right? I think it makes sense to buy small amounts of gold and silver over time, and have that as an anonymous form of wealth that can be handed down to future generations in the form of inheritance, including advanced inheritance like, Johnny, here's your box. Uh, this is what this is. Uh, I think it's one of the great things about silver and gold is not just the store of value it represents, but people are just less likely to spend silver and gold unless they need to. It's the kind of thing that once you've invested in it, it kind of sits there. It, it, it holds value over time. It traditionally gains value. Uh, And it is something that if it ever has to transfer uh, for the purchase of something, paying of a bill, often it can be transferred in uh, the way we say down here in Texas, it's only between you and me and the fence post. And I love anonymous stores of value and easily transferable wealth. And that's silver and gold. As far as jam bullion, an American silver eagle is an American silver eagle no matter where you get it. Okay, That's the whole point. So why pay more? JM Bullion has better pricing, free shipping, and gives you a discount if you're an MSB member. There is just simply no reason, if you listen to the show, to buy your silver and gold from anybody other than JM Bullion. I know your local shops and all. Maybe that makes sense to pick some stuff up here and there, especially numismatics or things like that. But when it comes to buying Bullion, why would you go anywhere else? Best price, free shipping, and discount. And support the show now eight years. Check them out, jmbullion.com. Remember, I'm not the all-in guy, but 5% of your net wealth over time in silver and gold as a wealth preservation uh, strategy. That brings us to our quote of the day. Our quote of the day is, and I will probably say this man's name wrong, but I will do the best I can. Khalil Gibran, who was a Lebanese American poet who was around from the 1800s up until about 1931 when he passed away. He's uh, an amazing writer. And one of his best quotes of all time, and, and certainly one of my favorite quotes from anybody that in regards to parenting and understanding parenting. And this is like one of those simple quotes. It's one sentence, and it's so deep. He said, you are the bows from which your children as living arrows are sent forth. And I think most people would get the basic understanding of that right away, that like you are the primary influence on your children as they go forth in life. But there's a bigger issue there. One of the things I think a lot of parents struggle with is understanding that you've got to let go. That literally your job is to work yourself out of a job. And whenever I say that I was qualified, it means I, I do not mean to work to the point where you're no longer a father or a mother. You will always be their father or mother Until, you know, one of you is laid to rest and then still in the heart of the survivor, you will be the father and mother, whether it's you or whether it's your children. And hopefully it's the other way around because no parent wants to bury a child. That's just awful. But when I say work yourself out of a job, I mean the job of actively parenting, setting limits, telling them what they should do, et cetera, where parents should go. See, I, don't want to, I never wanted to be my son's friend when he was a child. I wanted to be, first and foremost, his father. We could be friendly, but my, I had a job to do. okay? And that meant that I had to be the hard ass when he really didn't want me to. I had to provide the discipline when he didn't want it applied. Right? I had to be the guy that ruined the day because I said no. And my wife had to do the same thing. The closer and closer he got to adulthood, the more and more I pulled back from that to the point by which, my, by the time my son was a young adult, we were adult friends who were also father and son. And that whole relationship reverses. And that is shooting the arrow. When you're an archer and you draw that bowl to full draw, you take aim, you hope that your aim is true, you put your eye more on the target than the sight or the arrow itself, and you release. But once you release, you have absolutely no say, ever again, on what that arrow does. It goes forth, it flies, hopefully it flies true, but in the end, if it hits a stick or whatever, it's on the arrow, you've done what you can do. And that is how good parenting works. Once you have released that young adult into the world, you just rely on the fact that your aim was true. And know that while you know, an arrow flies pretty quickly and only so far, but a human travels for their entire lifetime. That if your aim is true, there might be some course corrections, but the arrow will end up where it's supposed to. Thought of the day, quote of the day. Again, really cool dude. Uh, I have some link, a link on him, if you want to learn more about him. He's a guy that you know, not really well known uh, in a lot of circles, and should be better known. Uh, real quick, real quick update on my keto diet. I just want to give you some baseline numbers and encourage you to watch this video I put out today. So I actually began doing this on the 12th of August. I mentioned it a couple times on the air, uh, and I had let my weight really creep back up again, and I was up to 247 pounds and i had some lab results that i was not happy with and i was clearly having some health issues and i decided like this is stupid you tell everybody else what they should be doing and you give them good advice and then they do it and they write you and tell you how great you, great it is that you gave them that advice why aren't you doing it and i just made a decision that like this is it this is done i'm going to do this and i went back toward a you know more of a protein based diet than a protein fat based diet which i had done in the past but all along the way, I'd been learning more and more about keto, and I dug into the science really, really hard, really, really fast, and became a believer in the science aspect of things. And so that means that as of this morning, I have been eating in a keto uh, diet lifestyle for 29 days. This morning, I weighed myself at 228 pounds, which is a loss of nine pound, uh, 19 pounds in 29 days, which is 7.69%, almost 7.7% of my starting body weight. I feel amazing. I have a few things going on from burning all that fat uh, as far as the toxins it release because you store toxins in your fat. There will be more of that coming to my video series. But I put out a video today that I think is really important. See, I started having a lot of people like on Facebook and stuff say, man, you're putting so much effort into your meals You're tracking all of your macros. You're even paying attention to your calories. You're using an app. You're entering everything. You're looking up how much is in an ounce of things. You're weighing stuff. You're cooking your meals in advance. You're doing all this. Wow, I don't have time to do that. And for the people saying it, it scares the shit out of me. What do you mean you don't have time to do it? What the F do you mean? You do not have time. Now, for some of you guys that are just looking to eat better because, you know, you're weight training your athletes, whatever, and you're in really good shape, and you're just looking to, like, fine-tune it, I'll, I'll, you guys do what you want to do. What I'm talking about is people that are, you know, 40% body fat, and they don't have time. And in this video, I explain why you should look at obesity as being as serious as a cancer diagnosis. Maybe it's a slower-moving cancer diagnosis. Uh, than than we typically think of. But if somebody told you you had cancer, a doctor told you you had cancer and showed you scans, here's tumors growing. And This is what it's going to do to you, and this is how it's going to likely kill you over the next 10 years. But here's a way you can get rid of your cancer. I bet whatever that treatment protocol was, if you knew that it worked, you would follow it to the letter because you'd be like, I have cancer. I'm going to effing die. Or if nothing else, they're going to have to cut my arm off or my leg off or my testicles off, Right or my toes off, or my fingers off, if I don't do this shit. I'm going to have serious, and if nothing else, even if I don't directly die, I'm going to shorten my life by 20 years. Then you'd be like, you know, shit, I need to do something. Well, look at the leading causes of death in America, and I think you will see that while you won't just see being fat, when you look at the causes of death, the majority of them, are related to obesity, diabetes, heart disease, etc. And even cancer, which is high on the list, a significant number of those cancers are either aggravated or the prognosis for survival is lower due to obesity. So if you, if you stand up straight and you look down and you see belly and not feet, That's enough to know you need to take this shit seriously. I'll just leave it at that. I don't want to preach to people. Let's get on to some other questions. So I ran MeWe Monday today, and I got a few questions off of there for today. I try to do that. If you guys want to participate on MeWe Monday, all that means is on Monday you use MeWe and not Facebook. Or you use MeWe and Facebook. Like, MeWe is a competitor to Facebook. If you don't use social media, I understand. But you might enjoy MeWe even if you don't use We as typical social media because we have a TSP group on there, um, Survival Podcast Hangout, and there's a chat room. And if nothing else, you might just enjoy using the chat room, especially on Mondays between 10 and 11 a.m. That's when I'm there. I may change it this week. I'm going to do a post tomorrow about this and try to get more participation. We have a pretty good group every Monday there. And if you come in there and you ask a question on a Monday and I'm doing a Monday show, I try to take at least a couple of those and give them priority. So this one came in, and it was from PA Prepper, and he wanted to know about using coffee grounds for fertilizer and composting. And Initially, he was thinking it would be a good question for Nicole uh, from Living Free in Tennessee, Nicole Sauce, who's on the Expert Council. And I don't know if Nicole has some thoughts on it. I'm sure she'll share them with us. She listens to the show uh, still all the time. And uh, But it, when it comes to coffee, I think Nicole's more schooled on drinking coffee than composting it. So this, I figured I'd take this one for you. And, and here's the deal with coffee grinds. Coffee grinds are a fantastic organic matter additive for your soil. And they're fantastic as an organic matter additive for composting. There is some things that you do have to understand with them, though. And, and what I'll just have to say is, The next time you make a batch of coffee, especially if you don't use a Keurig or, you know, one, a one, you know, one cup brewing contained thing, anything like that. If you use, um, a French press, if you use a drip, a percolator, whatever, look at the amount of coffee when it's dry and then make your coffee and look at the volume and weight of the coffee once it's been wet and then understand that when you put it out into the universe, uh, it pretty much is going to go back to the way it was. It was still maybe a little damp, but it's going to shrink in size and volume and weight. So a lot of times people think they have a lot of coffee grinds, and they really don't. Just think about what a pound of coffee, that you know, generally people buy coffee by the pound, will look like wet versus dry. Just so you understand, there's a lot less volume than you think there is. Next, a lot of times people say this is really good for worms to eat, and worms like coffee grinds. They will eat it. They will not eat do well on a diet exclusively of coffee grounds though, between the tannins and the acid uh, and then if you think about it any organism unless it's really specialized to consume a single thing generally does not do very well on a diet that does not include variety um, because you, if you eat one of anything only exclusively you will almost inevitably develop nutrient deficiencies And worms, though we probably look at them as such, are not stupid. They know what they need. So coffee into worm bins and things like that, great idea. Coffee exclusively to raise worms, I wouldn't do it. Um, As far as using it straight as a fertilizer, no problem. Uh, I would definitely recommend that around plants and stuff that are mulched, you pull back and sprinkle it, and sprinkle it at about maybe twice the volume you would if it was an organic fertilizer, because it doesn't have anywhere near the NPK ratios that that they do. Using it like as a mulch, like a thick layer, is is probably bad, um, and probably not going to do very well. And you're going to get a, a huge amount of tannin and acidity into your soil. For composting, you know, if it makes up twenty percent of your compost, I have no problem with it. If you're doing a 100% coffee grinds as compost, I think that you are, again, back. First of all, I don't want to do anything from a single ingredient, including composting. Um, but, you know, you do have tannins and acids. So most soils in America, not all, most soils in America could do it with a little more acidity. Most soils in America are alkaline, some to the extreme. And so the acidity that you get from coffee grinds is actually good. Plants that really love them are acid love coffee grinds as an additive around them Are you know, rhododendrons and azaleas and blueberries and things that like acidic soil tend to get a real good pick-me-up. Another place I would use a little bit of caution using too much of it is in potted plants or containers because unlike the open earth that has ways to dissipate, you're concentrating things. So the reason this comes up is because most people have switched on to the fact if I go to Starbucks – Or Joe Blow's Coffee Shack or whatever and say, hey, I want coffee grinds. They'll just give me coffee grinds for free. And so it is a great addition. And what I usually do is I kind of, I do chicken composting, right? So I have, basically, I just took some old cinder blocks that had been used to make one of my, you know, portable gates and I made a big square. And I throw all my compostable crap. I don't worry about ratios or anything in there. I just throw anything that's compostable in there, and the chickens and the ducks go in there, and they poop, and they dig, and they root around. And when it gets really, really full, I just make another one and start filling that one and just throw a bunch of straw on top of it. Well, about the time I'm ready to throw a bunch of straw on the top of the old one, right, I'll go get a couple bags, and they'll they'll, they'll give you like sometimes like a garbage bag full. Of coffee grinds and usually there's filters mixed in and stuff like that. It all breaks down, and I'll get one of those. It'll be really heavy because it's wet. But again, remember, it's not going to really um, be that much when it dries out, right? They don't they don't drain it for you. They don't dry it for you. And I'll just throw that in with that. And I'll probably do a few more days of throwing kitchen waste and stuff like that on top of it. Then I'll throw the straw on top. The chickens go crazy when I first throw the straw in there. They go dig it all up, and I'll go back and mutter something about chickens It's not very nice and kind of scoop it up my hands and throw the straw back in, and they'll throw it back out. And I'll keep doing that until there's enough in the new compost bin that they're, uh, that they're now attracted to that one because that's where the new stuff is every day. And they've kind of like, there's coffee grinds and straw, and we've kind of done our thing there. And he says bad things about us, so we're going to go over here and, and dig in this one. But see, actually, they're very helpful because they're helping, like, all those little grinds kind of fall down in with all the other stuff and incorporating some with the straw. So I really don't say that many bad things about my little chickens. And I'll just add some straw until I end up with a nice pile. And I'll, you know, whenever I'm giving the chickens and the ducks new water, you know, I'll just kind of just spray it, especially in the dry season, I'll just spray uh, 10, 20 seconds of water on top of there because it too wet? Is it too I don't care. I don't worry about it. And uh you know, about I'll make two piles like that about once um every half year. I'll make I'll go through like about every quarter, one of those is being kinda done that way. And then it'll sit for three to six months after I'm done with that and the straw will kinda collapses down and you know it was just gorgeous compost. And, you know, the to me the Coffee grinds are just a piece of the total, and that's how I recommend you use coffee grinds. They are a cool nutrient. In other words, like like rabbit manure, you can put them straight on the ground. You don't have to worry about anything. And I do that with them too a lot of times. Um, what I'll do is maybe for a week or so, instead of throwing my and also I throw all my coffee grinds in the compost. Instead of doing that, maybe I'll put my coffee grinds um, in a like a tub with a bunch of holes drilled so it can dry. And I'll set that outside so it gets dry, it's easier to spread. And then I'll go spread that around in my, you know, wicking beds and stuff like that. And I do that maybe once or twice a year. Anyway, let's move on to uh, the next one. I had a question also from MeWe Monday on small backyard ponds and fish to keep in them. And I think that we're really coming from the angle here of fish that eventually you can, uh you know, eat, fry up. So I'll start off with this by saying unless you live in like Zone 9 or above where you can keep your water temperature at at your absolute minimum water temperature somewhere in the high 40s, if you can do that, then you can look at tilapia. And if you can do that through some sort of heating as well, and people will say, well, tilapia die below 55 degrees. It depends. Specifically, White Nile tilapia. Uh, I have seen survive, not only survive, but remain, you know, at least, you know, upright and swimming around, though very, very slowly in the high 40s. Generally, the white tilapia I've worked with, about the time the water really starts to get ice on it, when that water goes down into like the 40 to 42 degree range, they go on their sides on the bottom. And you can almost you can almost monitor the temperature, and there'll be some point for your fish, depending on how adapted they are, they'll do that. And the one year they did that, and I've still got these fish now; they're three years old, they're massive white tilapia in one of my aquaponic systems. I had them outside in one of my tanks, and it was down near freezing before they did this. And of course, being that late in the year, the water's crystal clear; there's no suspended solids or anything. And I netted them all out, and I had set up a 300 gallon tank in my garage. Um, and I netted them out and I put them in there because I didn't feel like cleaning them. And every one of those buggers, like, almost instantly kind of started swimming around a little bit and whatever. And none of them died. All of them were completely unconscious, basically. When they came out, they weren't moving. But you could tell they weren't dead. And it, and I, I put them in water. And that water was about 50 degrees. And, you know, you see gills start to go and pff, they swam. So... That would be great if you're, and most of us are not going to be that. So we need to look to native fish of North America, okay? I mean, that that's what it comes down to. We need to look at native fish of North America if we want to eat them. And probably bluegills. Bluegills, sunfish, pumpkin seeds, these are all actual different species of sunfish, and people get all twisted about it when you call them perch or brim or whatever, but that's what most people generically call them, perch. Or brim. I know what a perch is. You don't have to lose your ass over it. I have one video where I called a bluegill a perch, and Jesus, like 80% of the comments were, it's not a perch. Perch come from Minnesota. Shut up. Um, so, we, you know, those are your fish. Uh, red um uh, uh, shell crackers, uh, like that. All of those fish. We all, you know, and, and one of the reasons we want those fish, and this is the other thing to look for, you want a fish that will readily adapt to being fed pellet feed. Because you're probably not going to do well supporting carnivores in a small garden pond. We'll get to how you can in a minute, but that's reality, okay? The easiest thing is something that we can go buy a fish feed for, and we can set up automation, or we can just throw handfuls in there and the fish eat them. And even if they're wild fish, you know, they might be kind of stubborn about it for like a couple weeks. But they'll adapt, and next thing you know, they'll be ravenous on it. So the other things that you can do this with, channel catfish... Bullhead catfish. The only thing with bullheads is they call them bullheads because of the size of their head. So, you know, a bullhead and a channel catfish, channel catfish get way bigger. Okay, but I'm saying if they were comparable in size. Let's say you had a, a fourteen inch channel catfish or a fourteen inch bullhead. A fourteen inch bullhead will probably weigh thirty five percent more by weight than a fourteen inch channel catfish. I consider a fourteen inch channel catfish borderline on being worth cleaning. Like, 16, 18 inches is where channel cats are their premium for meat-to-body ratio. But that bullhead that's 30 to 40% heavier will probably give you 70% of the meat yield of the same inches long channel cats. So, And they eat the hell out of everything, like little bluegills and stuff. They, if they can fit it in their mouth, they'll kill it and eat it. Right? Channel cats will, too, but when they're that size, their mouth isn't that big. That's the other thing. A 14-inch bullhead has a big old mouth. 14-inch channel cat still has a relatively small mouth, so if you're trying to keep other fish with them, you got longer for both of them to grow up together, but your catfish and your catfish will survive. You know, if the water isn't frozen solid, they'll live. I, I've literally seen a two-foot deep tank with little channel catfish in it with an, an, a foot of ice on it, and they were still alive underneath. So the, your bluegills will generally survive that way too. Um, those are probably your best: your channel cats, your bluegills, and then maybe bullheads, depending on how you feel about them. It, Those are your best. Now, if you want decorative fish in a garden pond, you want koi and or goldfish. And if your pond's not really big, you're really limited to how many koi you can have. And koi produce a lot more waste, even when they're the same size fish, than goldfish do. As far as goldfish, the the most ornamental goldfish to me, that get to a nice size but don't get stupid size like koi that get as big as your leg is a goldfish called a shabunkan. And these are basically, they look like a long-tailed comet goldfish, but they have really, really cool koi-like pattern colors. They, In fact, they look like small koi, except they're shaped a little bit differently. So, I mean, that's what I would look to, and I really wouldn't go much beyond that for your small backyard ponds. If you want to do carnivores, which would be your largemouth bass, and they can, largemouths can be trained to pellets, but you almost have to buy them where they were starting being fed pellets from birth to get this to work out. Or they've given you know, they were given feed when they were fry, and then as they got a little bit bigger, they were given pellets. Um, I guess you can try it, but the people I know that have, you know, done pool conversions or whatever, they keep largemouth bass, what they do is they go out once in a while with either traps or nets, you cast net where it's legal, traps where they're legal, and catch an ass load of little bluegills. And throw them in there, you know, and they'll pick them off a few at a time. And throw minnows in there and what have you. But the problem is those guys are going to clean out your forage fish in a small pond like that. I mean, pretty much wipe that out permanently, and you're going to have to continuously do it. That's why I don't recommend them uh, as a mainstay. But ornamental, shubunkin goldfish, uh, edibles, bluegills, and catfish. Next up, this one comes from John. John says, details... Uh, I'm sorry, uh, if I take a deer in bow season, am I going to be in over my head? Details, bow season is coming up in Texas. I'll be hunting public land in the San Angelo National Forest. I have packed my gear as you prescribed in your previous episode on bow hunting, including contractor-grade trash bags for dragging the deer. The place I have scouted and to hunt this year is about five-eighths of a mile to the closest point I could drive a motor vehicle. My concern, our 130-pound English Mastiff recently passed in my backyard. I put a contractor-grade bag under her to drag her 30 feet to the spot where I buried her. Rigor mortis had set in by the time I made it from home from work. I was pretty tired from digging a large hole when I moved her, the 30 feet to the spot where she would be buried. I'm in good physical shape, but at 160 pounds, this was about all I could do. This made me wonder if I'm going to be able to drag a deer out. I did not gut my dog or tie a rope to her and use a PVC handle or a wood handle. So it's not a direct comparison. I would not have killed, I have not killed a deer before, so I don't know what to expect in terms of weight. I might need to move. I expect gutting to reduce the weight by about 20%. Uh, 20, more like even 30%. And there's, a, there's more than just raw weight going there. Um, An animal, you know, uh, your dog, a mastiff, And number one, I'm I'm sorry about your loss. I know losing a dog is like losing a family member, so my apologies there. But using that as the analogy that you gave me. Um, A Texas whitetail buck, there's some big ones, but in general, 120, 130 pounds, that's top end. That's part of why the deer down here look so massive, like 130, 140 class, and I'm talking rack size, uh buck in Texas, if you don't know what you're looking at, will look like a hundred and sixty, hundred and seventy class buck from Pennsylvania or, you know, New England or, you know, it'll look like a friggin' hundred and eighty class buck from friggin' Nebraska. Because those deer are a lot bigger. Bucks in Pennsylvania where I grew up, you know, they would average a live weight of a young buck of like 170 pounds live weight. And an older buck, three and a half year old deer might be up over two hundred pounds or even more. Um down here I have not seen many really big deer body-wise. And so you're in Texas, you're in San Angelo, you're more of like a desert. You're, those deer are going to probably even err to a little bit less. So let's say you have a 120-pound deer. Well, you got that deer, and you're dragging about a 90-pound carcass. And 90 versus 130 pounds may not sound like that big of a difference. It's a big difference. It's It's a huge difference. On the other side of this, if you shoot a doe in Texas or a younger buck in Texas, you know, you're looking at an animal that's going to go 80 pounds to 100 pounds live weight. You got that and you're dragging 60 pounds. I mean, most of the does I've shot here, I can honest to God, if I were to tie their feet together, I could pick them up and sling them over my shoulder and walk. Now, even with my weight loss, you know, I'm 220 plus pounds. If I lose every bit of fat that I ever wanted to, I'm still going to be around 200 pounds versus a 160-pound guy. I get that I'm a bigger guy. I've got more muscle mass, um, that I can move more weight. I understand that. But still, I I remember being a 16-year-old kid and making my first you know, good-sized buck kill with a bow, having my uncle with me and having him basically say, you shot it, you drag it. And it was close to a mile long drag, and that deer was probably 170 ish pounds live weight. So you know, I was probably dragging a 140 pound animal. And if I can do that at 14, 15, 16 years age, you you can you can handle this. There is a thing called a deer sled that may make dragging a deer out a little bit easier. And another thing I would look at, and this is less for dragging a deer, but more for you shoot the deer, (laughs) the deer runs. He's got an arrow on it. You're waiting for the deer to fall over and die. You're all happy. I know. That was a good shot. Look at the deer run. Oh, look at the the ridge. Don't go over the ridge, deer. No! Over the ridge he goes. And you hear, Well, then you hear, the kick, the death kick. Oh, he's dead. Great. You run over. You look down the ridge. And, you know, this deer is 60 feet down the side of a ridge on, like, a 40-degree angle. Well... At that point, you know, and did he go all the way to the bottom, or is it still steep? And, you know, you're at a choice. Do I go down there and drag, try to drag it up? Do I go down there and and, and, and try to, you know, quarter it? Or do I go ahead and push it to the bottom so I don't break my neck doing what I'm doing and then quarter this animal out and take it out in, in packs? Or What do I do? Um, well, if you have a come-along, you go back to your vehicle, you come along and you wrap it around the deer and you go up as far as a come along you wrap it around a tree and you and it takes a long time uh, I did this with an, with another uncle and a bear uh and it was the, we would have never gotten the animal out whole without uh, a come along and we come along it up the side of the hill um it sounds like you're going to be hunting alone and that does make this a little bit you know more difficult the Thing you can do, especially if there's trees around, in most places you'd have some tree somewhere you can drag the animal to. Is you know you get a gambrel and the materials, and 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 if you have to, go ahead and part the animal out. I think in Texas you need to save a foot, some proof that it's a buck or a doe, you know, the head with an ear, and use your tag and whatever. Um, if you're in that situation and you're you're quartering out an animal, but you know you can the other thing you can do. If you look, they call it peeling a deer. You can pretty much not gut a deer. You can skin it. You can take all the meat off of it. You can even cut behind the ribs, reach inside and get those two beautiful tenderloins out. The only thing you'll sacrifice if you do this is what you'd call the bacon, which is just a little bit of meat to grind really more than I like to fry that stuff too. But that's your belly flaps, which you could then conceivably, once you've done everything else, you could go ahead and open it up and take those flaps. You could do that and just not worry about actually pulling the guts out. And then you could reach up inside and yank the heart out and just get some blood on you, but you could still get your heart and liver without fully gutting the animal, basically. And you could then pack out meat. And, you know, a 120-pound deer, if you're packing out meat in a head, you know, or for the game warden, you know, you're packing out Fifty pounds, if you're lucky, and you can do that with a backpack uh, and put all the meat in bags. And yeah, it's it's the meat's warm, but you got plenty of time. to Get back to the car, get it on ice, and what have you. So that would be your your fail safe if you really can't move the animal. Um, but I don't think you're in for dragging 130 pounds of weight, uh, especially in the state of Texas with a field dressed deer. Um, and you know, you'll the thing is humans tend to figure things out when they have to. So don't don't not go for this because of that concern. Here's one of those questions next up from Josh. And I have to kind of say, I don't actually have a great answer for it. And, and I, I won't, and I never will, and nobody ever will. Not Dr. Phil, not your family planning psychologist, not anybody. Here's the deal. This goes from JT, also known as John, or Joshua, I'm sorry. Um, how do you help a family member that won't help themselves? My youngest sister is raising three kids by herself. She's always broke, can't keep a job, and always seems to be blaming other people for her predicament. My wife and I are both self-employed and doing well for ourselves. We try to help her by having my sister's family over for dinner twice a month, occasionally taking one of the kids to football practice, showing up for their games, etc. We've talked about taking her kids shooting soon. I'm, I'm sure they'll love that. I realize you're not a family counselor, but from a preparedness mindset, while we are making sure we have plenty of food backup power, storm hits raising three kids of our own, and all the other things that require time and money. I keep thinking about how unprepared my sister is even for basic things, like having enough food on hand to last a week. My philosophy has always been to offer help to family and friends in need, but not money. If I take $200 of my own money and give it to her, she'll appreciate it, but won't actually help her lifestyle. When that $200 is gone, she'll still be in the same place financially. She has commented in the past about people being, quote, judgmental, unquote, when they help her out, and it makes me sad not only for her, but for her kids that she's raising. Do you have any advice on things we can do, maybe even buy for her that would actually help change her lifestyle? I almost forgot to mention my wife has hired her for some part-time work at a decent wage, but she continues to spend what money she has on things like tattoos and getting her eyelashes done. I don't even know what that means. Instead of putting that money towards her children, thanks for all you do, Josh. This is what you're going to deal with here. If you got this person to have an honest, frank conversation about how she's wasting this money, I'm going to tell you that she would believe every word that comes out of her mouth, and she is going to say things like, you know what, I deserve this thing. I deserve my tattoo. I deserve my eyelashes. I deserve this gizmo, or I deserve this night out, or I deserve this bottle of wine, or I deserve, whatever it is, She and she really believes that. And she believes that because she's coming at this from a point of scarcity, which is, to be fair, easy to understand. If you are a single parent with three children and a good job, and you're by yourself, it is a struggle. It is a struggle. And I I think the entire elevating of single moms to heroism, right, you are a hero because you're a single mother, is nonsense. And it's a big part of why we have problems like this. Single mother has become a thing that is like a badge of honor, like... I'm a single mother. That means I get to screw up and you don't get to say anything. I'm a single mom. That means I go get get, get a tattoo on my ass when my kids are hungry and you don't get to say anything because I'm a single mom and you can't say anything about a single mom. And I find that to be just bullshit. Just absolute, first class, grade A, supa de mierda de de toro, which is bullshit soup. Um, Next up I'll say this. You are absolutely right to not give her money. Do not give people in this situation money. One of the worst things you can do for someone that is chronically broke is give them money. Now, let me give you a caveat. This almost is ne- But this is the funny thing. What I'm about to say almost never happens. If you know someone who is they're busting their ass to provide for their family, is spending the money they do have wisely, is living based on a budget, and putting those they care for in front of themselves at all times, you can give that person money. That person, it's okay to give them money. Because they're going to continue to do with the money you give them what they're doing with the money they already have. In fact, that might be the person that you have to do the exact opposite. If you want them to be a little bit spoiled, like you feel like, I mean, all this person does is work for her kids, and she never does anything nice for herself, you might actually have to go buy her something nice for herself so that she can have something nice for her or himself. Because if you don't do it, they will never spend the money on that. That is a person I'm okay giving money to. I'm okay giving them a job that I don't really need them to do just so they'll have more money. I'm okay with that. But it's just crazy, isn't it, that those people are so rare? It's almost like those people, you know, they're always maybe really struggling, but they never seem to not have enough. It's almost like if we are financially responsible with what we have, we can make whatever we have work. It's crazy, isn't it? Like I said, it's hard with three kids and one parent. But you know, I know people in that exact situation. They don't earn a ton of money, but their kids eat well every day, and they're not buying tattoos and getting their eyelashes done or whatever the hell is. Going- I almost said the word I don't say on the show very often. Like that's just that's just bullshit. The only thing you can do is model proper behavior, and it probably won't work. I have people that I am related to either by marriage or by blood. They're exactly like this, maybe in a different situation, but they're exact same people. I have one person in my family, 60 years old, still bitching about the fact that she was not validated by her parents as a child. 60 years old. I was never validated. Shut the up. Okay? Really. Always broke. Always has been broke. Never had any money. Still bitches about her ex-husband. Ain't been married in 30 years. Bitches about her ex-husband and not being validated as a child. How do I fix that? Right? Living on disability and taking college courses at 60 hasn't had a job in 10 years. Her disability is from mental problems, which I agree with to a degree. But what really happened is this person flipped out at her job, which she was competent at, and screamed at everybody and threw a conniption fit because she didn't like the way people were talking to her. And then this person, while having some mental issues and being a crybaby and being somebody else, it's always a victim, addicted to being a victim, um, is smart. She's very intelligent. I say this person, he has an IQ in the 130s, like borderline or just over considered genius level like you. So smart enough to work the system, get on short-term disability from her company instead of getting fired, which is what which would have happened, but she went behind that legal shield and then managed to transition from short-term disability that the company provided to government disability, and has been milking counselors and shit like that. you think I'm going to give this person any money? I can't. Now, at least this person's children are grown and taking care of themselves and doing a wonderful job. So what I would say is you guys need to be great aunts and uncles to these three kids. And I would not even give her stuff. I would provide directly to the children the things that they need and the things that will make their lives better, and don't ever say a damn word negative about their mother. But model completely 180 degree the opposite behavior, because kids are smarter than we give them credit for. And when they say, "Well, Aunt Aunt, you know, uh, Uncle JT, his life's really great. Mom's life really sucks. Uncle JT doesn't buy crap he doesn't need, but he's always able to help me out." Focus on the kids. And this is what you say to your sister. I think that your life could be better than it is, even under your circumstances. I can't do it with money, but I can do it with advice when you're ready to take it. When you are, you let me know, and I'm not bringing it up again. That would be as far as I would take it. And it just might be a point along the way. There might be. There may never be. She may be, you know, you you may both be in old folks' homes, and she may still be blaming other people for her problems. That is a distinct possibility. But maybe if you take this approach, you might get a day where she goes, I'm, I'm tired. of I, I need to know. And then what you have to say is, okay, I can help you, but I can only help you if you truly want my help. And if you truly want my help, you have to commit to doing the things that I ask you to do for 90 days because I'm not... I love you, you're my sister, but I am not going to waste one minute of my precious time on this earth giving advice to someone who is going to come up with excuses as to why they can't take it. But if you will commit to 90 days of following exactly what we agree to and and being accountable, I will help you. And if she says, well, I'm not doing that, then you're not ready. You let me know when you are, and I'm not bringing it up again. That's the only way I see to approach a situation like this. And it, the the thing is... If she gets there on her own, it will work, but it probably won't happen. I don't have an answer for this because I am enough of a realist to understand that you control JT. To a lesser degree, your children and your wife. But you only really have 100% control over yourself. To think that you have any control over what the decisions are your sister will make, is, is lunacy. And your frustration comes from feeling an obligation to accomplish that which you do not have the ability to accomplish. Give yourself a pass. Focus on making sure the kids have what they need. Provide for the kids. And, you know, if you do help out at all, it's like buying food or something like that. Do not give her money. Do not pay her bills. Don't pay her bills. Now, if she's going to get thrown out of the house or something... You know, maybe you cover a month so that she doesn't get evicted because that's easier than moving them in with you, okay? That's a self preservation technique. But, like, you know, if she's really bitching about her electric bill, maybe you need to pay better attention to how much electricity you use. Like, you don't touch that. You don't touch that. But if you look at what the kids are eating you think, man, the kids really need better food, you know, go grocery shopping, bring the food over. You know, maybe bring the kids to your house more often and feed them. Whatever. Don't give her money, though. You are spot on there. So next up, we have one from Dan up in Alberta, Canada. He says, Hi, Jack. I'd like to know how to set up an automated Louvre and waterer for a small greenhouse. Detail, I have a digital holes valve timer for some gardens, but nothing mechanical such as a ram or pulley system. Open a window or a vent. On either a timer, temperature, or solar sensor, you've talked about the importance of automation. I want to take it to the next level. Knowledge of how I can set up some sort of actuator would be useful and very transferable to other things around the homestead. Thanks for keeping me interested for 10 years plus now, Dan in Alberta. Well, Dan, this is actually really easy. So sounds like you got the watering figured out, and there's many different uh timer systems for watering many different misters, sprinklers, etc. probably could do a whole show on automated irrigation for greenhouses let alone gardens and you know still have another show left in it without covering everything. So we'll just let that go other than use what works for the watering at the frequency and the volume and the force. And just think a little bit about when you're spraying water with it, if you're using little six-packs or something like that, uh, and the water hits with too much force, you can actually wash the seeds out. Also think about the fact that the smaller the containers that you have for plants in a greenhouse, the faster they'll dry out. So the more frequency, maybe it needs to be something that goes off three or four or six times a day, very short. You're better off watering a little bit, a lot, then watering a lot once and like floating seeds out, floating plants out, totally drenching everything, and then it's 12 hours before it waters again and then drying out. So just think that way. On an actuated open a window, 25 bucks and you're done. And I don't know how beneficial this will transfer to other things, but we don't really need to open a greenhouse window or close a greenhouse window on a timer. We don't need that. We also don't need to do it because the sun came up or went down. No, we need to do it on temperature. So there is a thing called an auto vent opener. I have a link to where you can find this on uh, Amazon in the show notes today. And there's a lot of different brands. They pretty much all work the same. And the way they work, they have a tube that's basically a hydraulic type tube. Uh, And inside that tube is a substance. Exactly what they use, I don't know. It's something that would work a lot similar to the way that mercury would work. It expands and contracts based on heat, though they don't contain mercury, or they'd come with a super warning, especially a warning for people in California. And it doesn't even have the stupid California causes cancer warning, which is rare, because almost everything on the planet comes with that California cancer warning. So we know it's not mercury that's in there. But it works on temperature. And you might think, well, this could be really complicated to, you know, figure out then, because how do I set it for the right temperature? So, the way they work is they have um, an arm, and that arm simply rises up and down and up and down. So you either need to have a window or put in a window that can work, just simply lifts and closes. And, of course, you can put in two or three or four, as many windows as you want. You just need an actuator per window. And since it's not the biggest device in the world, you can't have, like, a massive window or what have you. Uh, and you can even set some of them, like, two of them to open at certain temperatures and two of them to open in a little bit warmer, right? Right. You could set a couple down low and have them open a little bit you know, warmer. So first your top opens and then down low opens. And all there is is a little kind of like screw handle on them. It's like, kind of like a piece of all thread that goes in the tube. And the further you screw it in, the more it compresses whatever that fluid or liquid or substance is that's inside there that expands and contracts. When that expands, it lifts the window. When it contracts, it pulls the window closed. So all you do is when the temperature is, you know, warm, you set it so it's open. And as it starts to cool off, you go out and you look at your window. And you figure out what temperature do you want it fully closed at? And when that temperature happens, you turn your little handle until it closes. Now it's done. If it gets any colder, it won't get any more closed, and once it's warm enough, it'll open all the way and it won't get any, it can't open any further, and that's it. It's really a device that, unless it mechanically breaks, like the spring in it breaks, or one of the uh, the bolts or rivets in it breaks, or you know somebody smashes it with a hammer, other than that, it can't fail. It's just going to go on temperature. It's just like your thermometer is going to go up when it's warmer and down when it's colder. That's how this thing works. And they're about again, they're twenty five bucks. Um, so if you want to put two in, you're looking at fifty bucks. Plus you need a window of a certain size and shape that will work from simply an up and down. This is not going. if you have... Like in my greenhouse, I went to Lowe's and I just bought some inexpensive windows like you put in a house and I just put those in and you can could, you could just open them and they have a screen and they let air through. But to control like a louver so that we can use something like this, I could go into the front side down low where the wall is and put a couple of these in so that they open and close maybe one up on the roof. That's how it works and, um, you know, you really want to, one thing I want to say about these, in the time of the year where you want your greenhouse open, you want to make sure you have doors, windows, whatever, they can just stay open, right? <laughs> uh, the thing with these is they're going to stay open, right? They're going to stay open when it's warm, nonstop, all the time. That's good because they'll automatically close. But that may mean if you have a window somewhere that during the summer you really don't want it open all the time, you may even need to remove it for the summer, manually close the window, and reinstall them in your cool season, which, of course, is much longer than mine. But that's it. That's all there is to it. It is not complicated at all, and the solution is that little $25 device, which is in the show notes. Next up, John says... Um, our pond, which has a catchment including a horse farm and septic fields, is it safe to swim in? Details: Have a one-acre pond with about 50 foot of elevation above the pond surface in Virginia, uh, north of uh, Charlottesville. Uh, catchment based on top is mostly wooded, but includes 200 acre horse farm adjacent to us south and east. Most of the sources are local springs within a quarter mile. Wooded septic fields on our property are in the central hill of the property, both in the catchment and marked below. Uh, the smaller pond immediately north of the property feeds a stream that ends up running downstream the side of the dam, overflows, feeds, and heads downstream from there. What are some tests or planning we could do to improve or filter the water quality? So he gives me a thing. And so when I look at the map that I can't put on the podcast, there's a lot of catchment feeding this pond. And the only thing you can really do is put in things like. You know, maybe some swales and stuff like that planted with trees and shrubs uh, that will catch some of that water and require filtration. The answer is, I don't know, and I can't answer this on a podcast. I sent this to Ben Falk. Um, He said, "Nope, I'm not touching it either. There's no way I could tell you. Um, So, sorry, John, I can't give you a direct answer. What I would do is I would contact um, your state water, you know, whoever controls the state water uh, testing, and say, I'd like to send samples in to see if the water would be considered safe for swimming and send in, and get it tested. And, and you should be able to do that. That's, that's like the only answer I have there. If anybody else has a better answer, uh, go ahead and let me know. I do know there is, and this is even in lakes that are considered safe to swim in, there is some kind of amoeba, parasite, something that can enter through the nose. And uh, a couple children in the past you know, 10 years have died from it. But, I mean, this is a couple out of millions of kids swimming in lakes. Uh, there was a mom, and I feel terrible for her that uh, that she wanted this uh, this so badly because her child died. But it was a ridiculous thing. She went on the campaign to like have all children that ever swim in any lake wear nose plugs, and then they wouldn't die. And it's like I understand why you're that motivated. It's just not going to happen, honey. It's not. Um, but whatever that thing is, you know, it would probably have a preponderance uh, to be a higher probability in a pond like this. Um, the thing is, I don't know. Like, how much woods are between those horses and you? If this is like, it sounds like it's all wooded. If it's all wooded and it's, you know, thousands of feet that that water is moving through the forest, uh, the horses would probably have no impact whatsoever. If they're just over yonder and it's pretty open and water's like flowing right through horse shit down into your pond, that's a different story. So the only advice I can give is have it tested. Um... Next up, I have a question from Chris. What would you recommend for establishing a lawn on a half acre of bare dirt that was just graded with a dozer? We recently had our backyard graded in preparation for in ground pool installation. We're now sitting on a half acre of bare dirt, actually mud with five inches of rain over the last four days. The dirt is sandy, chert, full of rocks. The goal is to eventually establish tall fescue. Uh, I understand fall is the best time to seed a new lawn. However, uh, should I move directly to that by doing conventional liming, fertilizing, seeding? Or would you recommend to work on fertility first by establishing a cover crop like clover or winter rye? As an aside, I can hear you, and most you I say, don't put in a conventional lawn. I'm with you. been listening for years. This is a compromise with my, our wife. I give her a manicured backyard to go with the pool, and she lets me build a really nice outdoor kitchen to go with the pool. Thanks, Jack, Chris, and Georgia. Well, I would ask you this. Would your wife consider a lawn with clover in it to still be a nice manicured lawn? Most people, when they see what that actually looks like, would. So clover is going to do a lot of things for your fertility. It's going to do a lot to help your lawn. And if you can have a mixed fescue clover lawn, you have a really nice lawn. And if you have some plantain or something show up over there over time, you know, it does and it has and it happens. And, you know, as long as you don't have crabgrass and stuff like that, your wife will probably be happy. However, getting started here, I'm going to say if you can afford it, um, it's probably worth bringing in 20 yards of topsoil. And spreading a thin layer of topsoil. And like here I can get screen topsoil for 15 bucks a yard. So, you know, a guy with a, a bobcat for a day kind of spreading out some topsoil, just some screen topsoil, uh, would go a long way toward getting this done. Um, if you can get a hold of straw or something like that, something to, to harrow with, to cover seed with. And I would plant fescue of whatever kind you want and annual ryegrass together for this lawn. And you are going to explain to your wife, it's going to grow really tall, really stringy and really bright green. It's going to happen. It's just, it, it, this is what we have to do to get what you want. And I'm not even talking about cheating with the clover or whatever, if she's not open to that. And that grass is not going to live for more than six months. It's going to grow. It's going to cover the ground. It is going to prevent massive amounts of weed seed from germinating. While you get a little bit of germination of your fescue, Okay, in your winter, you're going to start to establish some of the fescue. Then in the spring, as early as possible for you, you want to go out and seed it with fescue again and then mow. And if you have it in you, I know half acre is pretty big, but if you have it in you, I would want to mow that with a scythe. right? I would want to go in, I would want to scythe that half acre if you have to borrow one because it's not going to be worth buying. And I would want to drop because that fescue by spring is going to be over a foot tall. And when you drop it, it's going to be this big grass mat. And that fescue is going to grow up in between it. And that's the best advice I can give you for that. If you want to do it with lime and fertilizer and stuff like that, I'm sure it works. I don't know how to do it because I don't, I don't have any desire to even know. So if you want to do it conventionally, I would honestly say if you want a manicured lawn and you want it done conventionally, then like a true green chem lawn or somebody would be somebody to establish a lawn like that. The easy answer is is to sod it. I mean that's the easy answer. It's just kind of expensive to sod a half an acre, but it's it's the easy answer and that's probably best done in the spring. But when you have like when you look down and you can see rock, if you don't do something about that, whatever you put down is going to have a really hard time getting up to speed and you're going to need to irrigate. Whether that's putting in an irrigation system or getting enough sprinklers and setting up a system whereby which you manually water. If you do not irrigate, I know it's a mud hole right now, but if you do not irrigate this, you have no chance of getting anything other than pioneering weeds taking over. That's what you're going to have to do. Um, again, I would, I would look to a conventional lawn company if you want a conventional lawn. Um, even if you don't want the chemicals that they'll use, the fertilizers they'll use, you get it established, and then you can take it over to an organic maintenance program. Uh, if you can find somebody that does organic from the beginning, then that might work as well. But that's, that's the advice that I have for you there. Okay, last and possibly least, very possibly least, in importance to your actual life, Uh, Today, Marcus wrote me and said, Jack, you have a pretty good uh, track record of predicting things at the political level. Who do you think will win the Democratic nomination for president for 2020? And when they run against Trump, do you think they will win or will the orange man clown win? Who will win the 2020 presidential election? I guess that's what I'm asking. Well, Marcus, let me start out with this on the Trump versus any Democrat. Unless the economy shits the bed in tanks, I would give Trump a 90 to 95% chance of re-election, no matter how much anybody hates him, because history. If we look back over the last 100 years, the last time a incumbent elected president lost an election during a good economic period was never. It just... Doesn't happen. And if you look at, well, who lost? Bush the first. We were in a recession. Who lost? Jimmy Carter. We were in a recession. Who lost? Not even elected, right? But incumbent. Who lost to Carter? Ford. We were in a recession. Reagan. We were in economic recovery. Reagan got reelected. Clinton. We were in good economic times. Clinton got reelected. Bush the second. Good economic times. We got reelected. Obama got reelected. Do you, you, to, to understand that, it's very simple. Probably 80% of people who vote, and it's really, that's what they say, it's probably closer to 90. Because of the 20% they call the middle, there's about 10% that are just effing liars. In the words of Dr. House from the TV show House, everybody lies. So you have about, of the, of the, the 20% of voters that say they're independents, half of them are still party line voters. They rarely, if ever, change their vote. We have tens of millions of undecided voters. No, you don't. Charlie, my dog, could run as the Democrat, and they'll vote for him. Or Max, my dog, can run as the Republican, and they will vote for him. They will not change their vote. The most they may do is not vote. So the people that are truly independent, if you think about how diametrically opposed the parties appear, and if you are participating in the election, you believe that shit or you wouldn't bother voting, okay? So how diametrically they are. For you to change your vote means you do not know what you believe. You vote on how, if you change your vote for president between Democrats and Republicans in the current system, and you believe the current system is valid, which I don't, but if you do then what you're saying is, I don't know what I believe. Because if you're for the Second Amendment and gun rights, you don't vote for a Democrat. Okay? You don't. Because they're not. They're very clear about that. Right? And I'm not picking a side. I'm just saying, like, that's the choice. So in every major issue down the line, you'll find it. So we have, like, 10% of people that actually move back and forth. And they move on fields. And the question you have to ask, is somebody feel more because my life is good or because Orange Man bad? So Trump wins reelection unless there's some, and I don't know at this point what scandal can touch the guy, right? I mean, they've thrown everything at him, some legitimate, some totally stupid, but it hasn't done shit. Like people that voted for Trump knew what they were getting. He's a womanizer. Well, no shit. He's a billionaire from New York. Of course he is. Right, that's how they think. So, no matter who it is, unless we have a train wreck to the economy or something, you know, we actually get true Russian collusion instead of all this stupid shit. Something like that. Something is released that we. Don't, you know, what could it be? I doubt anything. Right now, who wins the Democratic nomination? This is still up for grabs. You have right now four people that are even playing ball, though. You got Kamala Harris, who I think is the weakest of of the four. Uh, you got Joe Biden, who is the front runner and maybe the weakest overall. You got Sanders, who is the old commie who combs his hair with a balloon, and you got Pocahontas, uh, Elizabeth Warren. That's who you have. This shows that the Democrats really know they don't have much of a chance. There is not a good Democratic candidate. There are people that would make one, in spite of the fact there's like 30 of them. None of them are any good. And if you're a Sanders fan, I don't know why you listen to this show, because clearly you don't want liberty in your life, but I'm sorry, he's not a good candidate. He's not. I'm not saying he can't win. In fact, I'm going to give you the reason why I think he is the most likely to win the nomination. Joe Biden is the obvious choice for someone that can beat Trump. But Joe Biden is the Democrats' Mitt Romney. He is the safe choice they probably can't win a general election. But people might pick him because they think he can. Okay? However, right now Joe Biden is only the frontrunner because Harris, Warren, and Sanders are splitting the extreme progressive left vote. At some point in this process, as a clear frontrunner among those three emerges, there will be some backdoor shit. Like, I know you say you're not going to pick a VP right away, but if I had your assurances, I would drop out and campaign on your behalf. And if you take, if you take out Warren, the votes are going to go to Sanders from her. And if you take out Sanders, the votes are going to go to Warren. And if you do that, Joe Biden is not the front runner. The second you put them two together, now, you have to ask is someone who's supporting Warren left with Sanders and Biden going to support Biden? No. Is someone who is currently supporting uh, Sanders, if left between Biden and Warren, going to take Biden? No. Is someone who's supporting Harris going to go to Biden? My, not definitely, but most likely not. And the other, you know, still hanging on by the skin of their teeth, extremist candidates in the Democratic Party, all their shit's going to go to Warren and/or Sanders. So when I look at it that way, you got Warren or Sanders, and a very high probability of a Sanders-Warren-Warren-Sanders uh, Sanders ticket, one or the other, against the Orange Man. And the orange man cleans up against either one of them unless the economy falls apart. Or unless it comes off its wheels. And if you look at what the media is doing, and this is not supportive of Trump. This is, this is bashing of the media who totally deserves it. They tried Russia, Russia, Russia for two years. It did nothing. It didn't stick. Even the people that believed it, they weren't completely, totally, 100% anti-Trump. They were like, ah, this looks bad. Like when the, when the whole Mueller report all came out, it went, ah. Yeah. And then like CNN and MSNBC and all that, they tried to keep it going. And like their ratings just like, like shit, nobody listens anymore. You know? And then they tried a few other things. And now it's, well, we're not in a recession, but we could be, and we're probably headed for one, and we're trying to create a recession. Unless it happens. Orange man for the win, and it's either Sanders Warren Warren Sanders or the kind of kindredship between the two of them. In the nastiness at the end, breaks down, and that's where you could have someone like a, you know, maybe a Harris pull it out, but I doubt it. But what would more likely happen is in the fight, and they, you know, as they, as they, you know push each other away due to getting nasty. Because if if Biden really like, see Biden's gonna lose New Hampshire. And Biden's gonna lose Iowa. The question is how bad? If Biden does okay, you know, you're on in North Carolina, you're onto a bunch of much more like New Hampshire and in Iowa don't really decide the election, but they set the po the the the, the tempo for it. If he gets killed in both of them Then he maybe loses confidence. Let's say Biden goes out early, and then Warren and Sanders are beating each other up. By the time they get down to the wire, then you might have either one of them pick a different VP candidate because of bad blood. And the reason that might happen anyway is is both of them appeal to the progressive wing. They need a VP candidate that can reach across to the moderates in their mindset. So that's an offshoot. But Sanders or Warren versus Orange Man, Orange Man for the win. Uh, Let's go ahead and wrap things up now. Uh, By the way, real quick, my father is convinced, and I'm not, I don't agree with him at all, that Hillary Clinton will enter the race um, probably toward the end of this year, the beginning of next year, right at the end, as a big spoiler in that she'll win. I, I think my dad is watching too much TV, and uh, age is starting to, to deteriorate once was a very sharp mind. Anyway, so if you want to help support this show and the work that we do, one of the things you can do is you're online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com, you'll see all the items I recommend on Amazon. They're all in alphabetical category, but no matter what you buy, if you start there, you help support us. Today's item of the day is one I've brought around before quite a few times. It's gunpowder green tea. What the hell is gunpowder green tea? Does it taste like guns? No. Does it taste like gunpowder? No. Does it smell like gun oil? No. It's green tea. The reason they call it gunpowder, you gotta think back to like old gunpowder, like, you know, sixteen hundred shooting cannons. Right. Uh black powder. And the way green tea gunpowder green tea is made is the leaves are actually rolled into little balls. So they look like little balls of black powder. And that makes it fairly dense. So um, it takes a little bit to make a really great cup of tea. And it's a great green tea, and that's, that is what it is. Next, though, is Davidson's in general. If you want good quality, organic teas, whether it's a tea like this is or a raw herb, Davidson's is a great choice. It's affordable, it's organic, it's available on Amazon, and therefore you can support this show by buying through Tea spas so Davidson's just a great company overall to deal with. I use a lot of their teas for loose teas. Next, this makes an excellent tea um, that you can mix with other things. I do, this is by volume, this one in particular, three parts peppermint, three parts lemongrass, two parts orange peel, and two parts green tea. Again, this is a volumetric measurement, so by tablespoon you would mix this, let's say, or by cup, or half cup, or quarter cup, whatever you wanted it to do. Um, It's really great, and there's more green tea in it than you would think because, again, the tea is dense. So next up with this stuff, you can make something that's going to sound a little bit weird, but it's kind of cool, and you can probably do it with a plant that you either have growing on your property or nearby, or you could easily establish. The plant is called wild bergamot. It's also known as bee balm, which is probably how you'd see it uh, advertised. It makes these really beautiful flowers that bees love, hence bee balm. Now, the reason it's called wild bergamot is because there is a, an orange that's grown in Italy, in southern Italy, called bergamot orange. And this is used as a nutraceutical, but it's also used to produce an oil, and that oil is then sprayed on classic tea, you know, your black tea, and that's what Earl Grey tea is. So if you've ever had Earl Grey, I said like, you know, Captain Picard, Earl Grey hot, right? Um, if you've ever had that, you know it has this, it just tastes like tea, but it has this velvety texture. It's weird because how can liquid have a texture when it's just watery liquid? But it does. It kind of coats your mouth and it has this velvety feel and velvety character to it. And that's from the bergamot oil from the orange. And that's one of my favorite all-time classic English style teas. Well, the reason they call uh, b Bomb wild bergamot is when you make a tea from it, it has the same characteristics. It is not the same oil. It's not chemically the same as this orange oil is at all. But it tastes like it, and it has that same velvety character. So if you want to make a green Earl Grey, what you want to do then is blend two parts of green tea to one part bee bomb. and I came with that formulation by weight. All right, so if you do an ounce of green tea, you do a half ounce of the B-Bomb. B-Bomb, a little goes a long way with it, with that characteristic. And remember, when they make the Earl Grey tea, they're just misting the cured black tea leaves. It doesn't, you don't want it to be overpowering. So, you can give that a try as well. But remember, no matter what you buy, if you start at T-SPAS, you help support the show, and the work that we do. You can also join the Member Support Brigade, you'll get a bunch of great discounts. That's all I'll say about that today, except that it is the main way that I, uh, provide this show. Without, Members Brigade, this show is not sustainable as a business. That's how I make my money, and if you like this show and you think it's worth 20 cents an episode, consider joining. Last, but not least, our song of the day today, and I'm starting a week late on our songs. This song was supposed to be the lead-off on the first show of September, because it's called September by Daughtry. Quick story about Chris Daughtry and why I love the dude. His music's good. I mean, it's not the greatest in the world, but it's good. I'm not a huge fan directly, but indirectly I am, because... Long, long time ago, in a galaxy right here, there was a young Jack Spearco who was learning how to make Google his bitch as an SEO specialist, and making money wherever he could and however he could on the internet. Yeah, this Jack Spearco. And he and his family used to watch a show called American Idol on occasion, because his son really liked it, He was still living at home way, way back then. We're talking on like 15 years or so, all right? And... um uh, Jack was watching the show, and this this Chris Daughtry character was driving a forklift around, and he was like one of those guys, you go, man, I know women like that guy. He's a he's good-looking guy. And he was like, all I want to do is you know be able to do a better job of taking care of my wife and my kids at home. And I went every teenage girl on the planet just fell in love with him. So this young Jack guy went out and bought a domain name called chrisdotryfans.com. And he put up a stupid little front page driven website. it was over 15 years ago. I think it was about 2001 ish, somewhere in there. I don't know. It was, it was a long time ago, maybe 2004, whenever Daughtry was on American Idol. And I put this site up and I put all these Google ads on it. I started making about $5,000 a month off of Chris Daughtry. He's the last CD I've bought a CD from. Because by then digital music was all the rage. You could steal it online while You could buy it on iTunes. Um He was the last person I ever bought a CD from because I felt so indebted that when he came out with his first CD, I bought one because of a sense of obligation. I also sold the hell out of them as an Amazon affiliate. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, that's – but this song, let's talk about the song a little bit for a change. So this song um, is really about having to leave a town, a small town. He said in an interview, Chris said that he grew up in a town of about 100 people. And he knew if he was ever going to do anything big, he couldn't do it there. He had to go. And it's about looking back about all the great memories of a small town, but realizing you have to let them go. And that maybe sometimes that nostalgia isn't quite as good as you remember it. But yet, there is the friends, and the weekends at the lake, and all of that stuff, and playing in the rain, and whatever. And There's just something amazing about small town America. But if you want to achieve... It's hard to achieve there. And I wonder, maybe in the music business, you still have to leave, but in this day and age, where we have digital everything, can you not become a hell of a success if you want to in a small town or become a hell of a success and figure out how to live in one? I think dynamics are changing that way. Last, I'd say the, the month chosen here, I'm sure it had something to do with the ability to rhyme and just the sound and whatever, uh, you know, musical license. But I think September is an amazing month to think about when you think back to being young. Because September, the weather is still summer-like, but it has cool nights. The, the the freedom of summer is over, but the excitement of like a new school year, whether it's high school or college, has begun. That's where you meet girls if you're a guy, guys if you're a girl, etc. It's just it's and it's you know football season starts both pro and high school and like there's just so much going on. And when I think back to like my high school years and the good, really good parts of them. It seems like kind of that time of year, that September, October, was pretty awesome. So just a cool song overall and a little bit about my history as, you know, uh, as an Internet entrepreneur as well. With that, it's been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to, make, how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I have a time passed away. All the trouble that we gave, and all those days we spent out by the lake. Has it all gone to waste? All the promises we made, one by one they vanished just the same. All the things I still remember. memory Nothing left to fear So we made our way by finding what was real Now the days are so long That summer's moving on